If you have your own story of being in a cult or a high control group, or if you've had experience with manipulation or abuse of power that you'd like to share, leave us a message on our hotline number at 347-86-TRUST. That's 347-868-7878. Or shoot us an email at trustmepod at gmail.com. Trust me. Dude, you trust me. Trust me. I'm like a smart person. I've never lied to you. I never have lied to you. If you think that one person has all the answers, don't. Welcome to Trust Me, the podcast about cults, extreme belief, and manipulation from two angry women who've actually (laughs) experienced it. I'm Lola Blanc. And I'm Megan Elizabeth. And today, our guests are Felicia Rosario and Daniel Levin, survivors of Larry Ray and his Sarah Lawrence sex cult. So today, we're going to discuss how they came to meet the charismatic Larry, the ways in which he leveraged his photographic memory and government connections to craft a persona of ultimate authority, and how he slowly gained control of their minds and their lives all under the guise of helping them. They'll tell us about how his manipulation escalated into sexual abuse and ultimately horrific violence, how one night of being alone led to Daniel finally leaving, and how they're both doing now that Larry's finally going to prison for the harm that he has caused. That's thank God. right. Yeah, thank God. Um, Bye, Larry. I wish we could have talked to them for so much longer, but I love this interview because we got to really talk about how he sort of really started to take control of their minds, which I feel like is such an important part of the picture. Like, it's not just about yeah, the actual physical abuse. You know what I and mean? Their mi- and their minds are so what people historically think of as smart. So it yeah. can really show what can happen to anyone. I mean, they are smart. <laughs> I know. I, yeah. I just mean like Harvard. You mean like traditionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like- they have the like qualifications mm-hmm. technically for what you would consider a smart person. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, they're geniuses, but you know what I mean? So are a million <laughs> people that have gotten into cults, but they just didn't go to Harvard. And then people are like, they're dumb. Whatever. I didn't um, go to Harvard. Am I dumb? Yeah. Yeah. Very oh. stupid. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I <accept>. kidding. <laughs> um, well, before we dive in with them, Megan, kindly tell me your Coldiest thing. Okay, well, it's definitely not good news, but probably a lot of people have seen this in the news. Uh, the actor from Dancing with Wolves, his name is Nathan Chasing Horse. He was arrested in his Las Vegas home. He had five wives with him, some underage, and he's been running a sex cult. And essentially, he's been using Native Americans' beliefs against them because he would go do spiritual ceremonies and all these reservations across Canada and the U.S. and kind of be like, now I need to have sex with someone. The story is very confusing and muddled, and I think it's going to get more clear as more stuff is released. But It sounds like he was having sex with women or girls as young as 13, and he had pills for his wives to kill themselves should the police show up. So it looks like they narrowly missed being part of a death cult because the police got them out in time. Yeah, I think. Thank God. I mean, it just goes to show that there's really no belief system that is immune Mm -hmm. to the abuse of power. Like any freaking religion any community like and i don't want to like you know be a fear monger or or whatever but it is kind of everywhere and it can exist in any community and that's why it's so important for us to you know be mindful of group dynamics (laughs) yeah wherever there's a good thing happening somebody can twist it and make it very bad i know it's just it's such a bummer when it's like I mean, it's always a bummer. It's always a bummer. But like when it's someone who's supposed to be like a spiritual healer or, you know, a spiritual leader of some kind. Yeah. 
Um, but again, always a bummer in every scenario. It it like it's always under the guise of helping people. I mean, at least very, very frequently, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it makes me sad that there are so many of these usually men, not always, out there. Yep. Very unfortunate. Just messing with people's beliefs to have sex yeah. with them. Yeah. Oh. It's evil. I know. I know. What about what about you? What's the cultiest thing that happened to you? Well, this week. Um, nothing culty has happened to me this week because I've been in an editing hole, but I am emerging from the editing hole. And uh, welcome back. I, thank you. <laughs> um, I was just really interested in this story that you actually alerted me to about um, how there was a retired NYPD detective who was just sort of talking about how Internet sleuths are dangerous. <laughs> mm. um, and so there's this article about how... Um, Here's a quote from him. Sleuths don't know the standards of proof that police departments rely on. They may end up violating somebody's rights when doing these private investigations and inevitably might compromise courtroom testimony and presentation. And there are just a few instances in the article describing people who actually are now being prosecuted for unethical web sleuth behavior and also people who are being sued for like pointing a finger at someone for a crime that they fucking did not commit. (laughs) Yeah. So it's about the Idaho history teacher, Rebecca Schofield, who's suing this TikToker um, for defamation. Good. there, There are like other instances of this happening. And listen, like I know that if a crime has been committed against you and the police are not doing their job or like the authorities are just like not taking your case seriously. Like I totally understand the desire to get help from other people, but there obviously are just people who take it too far. People who make accusations without knowing what they're talking about, just because things look a little funny. Mm-hmm. And as we know, coincidences are not the same as actual evidence mm-hmm. that would hold up in court. So I just, I just, I appreciate that there's some attention being called to it. Um, even though of course there are instances of it working. <laughs> I'm very curious to see what happens with this case. I wonder what the punishment will be since she's obviously guilty and was really destroying this woman's life and saying, I know you killed these kids. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, it's so scary. I know. Um, well, speaking of scary things, shall we? Let's do it. Trust Me is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening right now are probably multitasking. Yep, while you're listening to us talk, you're probably also driving, cleaning, exercising, or maybe even grocery shopping. But if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you can be doing right now. Getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts. discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome Felicia Rosario and Daniel Levin to Trust Me. Thank you so much for joining us today. First of all, you guys have just been through so much, especially you, Felicia. It's very harrowing, some of the footage that we have seen. And I'm very grateful that you're even able to share your story and be here with us today. Can you guys kind of start us at the beginning? We can go one at a time. Just telling us what your lives were like 
before you met Larry Ray? You can start with you, Felicia. <laughs> okay, my life before I met Larry, I was had just started my internship, my residency in psychiatry at USC. I had gone to Harvard on scholarship and studied biochemistry, and then took some time off and went to medical school at Columbia in New York. Uh, pretty sweet education you have going before Larry Ray. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah. What was like what your trajectory? What were you hoping life would turn out like before you met him? Uh, before I met him, I was planning to be a forensic psychiatrist, actually. Wow. Um, so that was part of why I went to USC in LA, because it has one of the best forensics training programs in the country. Yeah. And I was planning to be um, a forensic psychiatrist do research, work with the underserved, work with the disenfranchised. Mm. That was a plan to give back, to help as many people as possible. And Daniel, uh, what was your life like before Larry? Substantially less admirable. I was, uh, <laughs> no. I was at Sarah Lawrence College. I was 18 years old. I uh, also there on scholarship had just kind of barely gotten in and was happy to just be figuring out who I was at 18. You know, I was studying these like classic liberal arts things like writing and poetry and philosophy and literature. And it um, looked like heaven. The campus is just yeah, like these beautiful old buildings and trees. And yeah, exactly. It, yeah. It was everything that I had kind of envisioned college might be like. Um, mm. Yeah. The sort of rolling hills and the big old stone buildings and 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 friends, you know, it was the first time that I was going to a place where I was surrounded by people who were like me. I, I grew up in a pretty conservative area. And so just starting to discover myself when I met Larry Ray. Right. And you met him first, right? You were kind of living in the apartment when Felicia arrived. How did you first meet, first of all, Larry's daughter, Talia? And then how did you meet Larry? Sure. So uh, in freshman year, I made friends with Santos, uh, Felicia's younger brother. Uh, he was my freshman year roommate and kind of my first friend at Sarah Lawrence. Um, he started dating Talia Ray. Um, and so, you know, they had like a college relationship. And everyone knew that Talia's dad was this guy, Larry, who had been uh, unjustly, according to her, incarcerated. He was this incredible... Uh, intelligence agent. He had done all these amazing things and had been at the center of this conspiracy. She'd been separated from her sister. This was kind of the story that Talia would tell over and over. And that was like her life to get back together with her dad. And going into sophomore year, Talia kind of spearheaded all of us getting group housing, uh, which at Sarah Lawrence, you can apply to all live in a house together as a group, mm. uh, which gives you a better shot at just getting better housing. Uh, so we got to move into this kind of townhouse type situation rather than being lumped into dorms with other people called uh, Slonem Woods. There were eight of us, and we learned towards the beginning of that year, our sophomore year, that Talia's dad was getting out of prison. And she asked if he could come and kind of crash while he got uh, his feet back under him. And it felt like it would be kind of horrible to say no to that after her whole life. She'd been living in homeless shelters, all these things. All she wanted mm. was to be back with her dad. And so we kind of passively let that happen. And that's how Larry Ray came into my life. And can you tell us about your first impression of him? What did, what did he seem like? Yeah, I, you know, for me off the bat, 
he mostly seemed really stressful, you know, <laughs> to be honest. He was just kind of like he would talk a lot and really fast, and, and it just seemed like he took up a lot of my friend's time and attention. He was first sort of um, had Santos and Talia, Larry's daughter, and Talia's best friend, Isabella, were sort of in his orbit, and then later our friend Claudia. And they just seemed to really glom onto him, and I was dating my first girlfriend of you know, my life really, and was socializing and having fun. And this just seemed like a lot. They were talking about like truth and justice and like mm. fighting back against the powers that be. And it was just like too much. Um, <laughs> so I was very happy to ignore that. Um, but I was ignoring what turned out to be a lot uh, more than just those conversations. Right. It's interesting because it seems like that initial transformation with Santos and Isabella was what really drew everyone in. And I understand that. Can you tell a little bit what happened to their demeanor after spending time with him? Yeah. It it seemed like, you know, we're at Sarah Lawrence, which is famously a very kind of liberal environment. It felt like everyone had been pretty free spirited, but at the same time was dealing with a lot of kind of 18 year old angst. You know, I knew that Santos had the same kind of struggles that I did as a young man. Um, And it was pretty clear that Isabella was struggling with some things that I would now call like mental health uh, issues. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they became a lot more regimented, I would say. It felt like uh, they were kind of myopic, like uh, single-minded, and a lot less fun, uh, <laughs> noticeably. Um, and so, but at the same time, they were talking really regularly about how great Larry was, how much he was helping them, how much the sort of problems they'd been dealing with with themselves, with their families, were kind of all getting cleared up. Everything was so much better. And they seemed like school was going better for them. You know, it felt like there was evidence that something was changing. It just at the time wasn't a change that I even really desired. I was perfectly happy to not be doing great in school. Right. And Isabella, like, seemed to have like a complete transformation as a person. Reclusive at first and then dynamic. Yeah, I think that she was at first what you might, it's a reductive phrase, but what you might call like an emo girl, kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, the the person you recognize that hair is always in front of their face. She's kind of like, uh, pretty retreated into herself maybe a little like scathing, you know? Um, And Talia was like her first really close friend who seemed to really see her and make her feel like a person. And there was something that seemed kind of beautiful about that. And Larry became an extension of Talia and then this Mm. kind of father figure for her. And that was really evident, like very quickly. Um, And all of a sudden it did seem like Isabella kind of came out of her shell. She was like very confident and very outspoken and, you know, had a big personality and all of this happened all of a sudden. Wow. Mm. So, yeah, so that I, yeah, I would have been like, sign me up. What what just happened? What sorcery? Oh, he's helping. He's helping all of these people. Maybe he can help me. And it showed like Santos, like kind of being in the deck. That's so wonderful. I hope everybody sees it, but like being hunched over and then his uh, posture changes and he's confident and, and it just seems like, wow, I I would want to talk to this person so badly. Yeah. And Felicia, I would love to hear from you um, since your siblings kind of knew him first. Like, what did you observe in them when they started spending time with him? Um, I would echo what Dan said. 
as far as my brother goes, he was much brighter, happier. He was much more confident. He had goals. He was a different person. He was the person that I mean, he would say he was the person that he what that he had always wanted to be. Like mm. he had gotten he had gotten to that place because before that, um, he had struggled significantly with mental illness mm. and had had a suicide attempt and was rec- had been recovering from that and recovered well enough, you know, to go to college and go to a great school. Um, but you know, there were still vestiges of you know everything that led up to that. Right. And that was, that went for all of us, including myself. Um, but after Santos started talking to Larry, he was just like, Oh my God, you know, this is so great. Life is awesome. I want to try all these things. Like it was hard enough to get him to try like a different kind of sandwich. Right. <laughs> Let alone like want to do <laughs> anything different. Um, and then my sister, like Santos introduced um, my sister to Larry and she also um, was very similar. She had struggled too with depression and anxiety and Larry just like made like, it felt like he snapped his fingers and made life better. Hmm. Um, yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's such an important piece of the story because the thing with Colts and the thing with abusers is that at first it's great at first, it works. Like, whatever they're offering awesome. you is effective. Like, for whatever reason, sometimes they're pulling from legitimate psychology or, you know, and sometimes they're just providing a sense of community or sense of purpose. But whatever the reason, it's working. And that is why people get drawn in. They don't get drawn in, like, seeing him abuse someone. Like, that's not what happens. Right. And what the yeah. technique he had with Daniel first, I mean, Daniel, your story is just, oh, my, we were talking today. It's just like, we feel sick to our stomachs. You guys have been through yeah. so, so much. You're yeah. such beautiful people. It breaks our hearts. But Daniel, so... You were you were in college. You're struggling. You're like, am I gay? Am I not gay? And he draws this diagram for you and is like, are you attracted to men? And you're like, not really. And he's like, great, then you're not gay. And he just takes it away. And suddenly you said you felt like a million pounds were lifted off of your chest. Like, what what did that feel like? Well, I think, you know, we're all familiar with the feeling of moving through life with no one definitively telling you how anything works or what is Mm, true or false or good or bad, how to be a good person. Like we, the idea of there just being actually one person who, if you can imagine actually trusting them, like really believing that they do know, and then they just tell you, this is who you are. And it's, what a you like. a dream, yeah. it's a dream. It's a dream. Yeah. It's awesome. You know, yeah. yeah. Like, and great. this is what you're going to do yeah. with your life. And I'm going to help you do it. It's going to be great. You know, and, and just truly, if it's so hard to imagine now because everyone's seeing all the horrible things that happen. But if it's possible to sort of rewind to that moment and be like, absolutely. If you actually believed that, what an incredible relief. And this is how people end up, you know, living under fascism. But um, <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, I felt anxiety about whether or not I was gay, about my sexuality that I think probably the vast majority of young men feel. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt insecurity about my body that I think is extraordinarily common, all of these things. And he offered black and white answers, you know, Mm -hmm. definitive answers. And it felt like finally I can quell this anxiety that I've been struggling with. Now, of course, as things progressed, 
having someone tell you some uh, a simple answer that isn't actually accurate to the more complicated reality uh, it doesn't really work you know i kept having these questions sort of crop up and then those sort of my questioning uh pushed back against larry's control and so it escalated into abuse well i want to i want to talk about some of the ways that he did begin to exert control over you, Daniel, and then Felicia, let's start getting into your story. Yeah. Uh, when did it start to uh, get bad? Because we first it got sexual, correct? So you guys are at Sarah Lawrence, then you then he gets an apartment in the city. And that seems like it when it took a turn for a little bit more extreme. So you are you guys are now staying at the apartment in New York City. And first he starts kind of narrowing in on sex with you yeah and i can i can say like i so you know i first move into this apartment because it's in the simplest terms was just genuinely finding it so difficult to find an apartment in new york city mm-hmm. and was just like you know i was going to sarah lawrence which is just outside the city it seems like the thing that everyone all the like cool kids do is live in the city what i didn't know is they all had rich parents and i just couldn't <laughs> they never tell you that yeah <laughs> Yeah, no one tells you that that's the way. Um, so, you know, it genuinely, it felt like I had missed a class on how to be a person mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And Larry kind of came in and was like, I can, I can kind of catch you up. And I have this place that you can live. And also your friends are like staying over and hanging out there all the time. And, you know, everything's cool. Um, so it's like, fine, you know, I'll crash on his couch until I figure it out. And Larry introduced sex into this environment. So I'm sleeping on his couch, essentially, is how I understand it. And uh, for some context, I had known that Isabella kind of had a crush on me while, you know, we were all living in this dorm. Um, I just wasn't particularly interested. But he, like... sent her out into the living room to perform oral sex on me. Uh, And I have a distinct memory of feeling like frozen and like time was slowing down. I Mm -hmm. sort of didn't understand what was happening. I'm like staying in this apartment. I kind of feel like I owe them something like, um, I don't want to cause trouble. And then what would I do if I like can't, continue to stay there. I don't have anywhere else to go. Mm. And so that was just like the, the smallest first step into what escalated into kind of Larry claiming to give me like a sexual education um, mm-hmm. because I was, had hangups or was too like prude or needed to kind of like get out of my shell. And, you know, um, it became very controlling and coercive and non-consensual yeah. uh, from top to bottom. It's, it's- God, it's it's so terrible. What were some of those ways that you can see now that were him like slowly getting control over you? Like, can you talk about like isolating you from other people or in the late night interrogations? Like, I am just curious about that process because it does happen slowly. How does it get to the the point that it got to? So for me, you go from like you're hanging out with your friends in college and sometimes you're having like all nighters or you're staying up until like sunrise and this kind of thing. And now I'm in this environment where we're staying up until sunrise, but we're talking instead of just like hanging out and making jokes, we're talking about like 
how to be a good person. And my friend's 55 year old dad is there. Um, and he's kind of running the show. And then that shifts to being like, these conversations will be really focused on one person and their relationship to their memories and their childhood and what happened with their parents and, you know, how they behave and all these things. The mechanism here for the more intense um, abuse, I think, is basically shame. You know, um, he made me feel like, he said to me, you're not gay, you know, you're a man. Uh, And then it was like up to me to prove it by going along with Mm. what he was the context he was creating, the circumstances he was putting me in. So, you know, it was like, if you want to continue to prove that you're the type of man that I've said you are and you're straight and you're all these things, you will follow my lead. You right. know, whatever. So he first establishes himself as like an authority on like everything, basically. He is the wise guy. Literally everything. Marines. Uh, well, he was in the Marines, but he said oh, was he was he? like this. I thought he wasn't. Oh, he wasn't. He was in the Marines, in the Marines for like, what was it like? 19 like days yeah yeah just yeah, a minute but it was like his whole identity <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i didn't realize it was that short that's yeah. hilarious like, i mean technically true but yeah um but that but like he's you know painting himself as someone who has been a part of very high level government operations and he's experienced a lot and he's been through a lot so he has all this wisdom and i'm assuming he actually did do some reading on things because he seemed to know about things which maybe you can speak to felicia um Mm -hmm. but so like he's establishing like i'm the authority i know about everything you're all young i i know what to do i know what the answers are and then he's creating these goalposts for you because he has all this wisdom and he knows what's best for you um for you to live up to that continuously move right this like oh you're not good enough he, I'm going to tell you how to be good enough. But then that, of course, Weird, you didn't changing. reach it again. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was very well read or is, sorry, again, <laughs> he is very well read. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's very educated on many topics, mm. can carry on a conversation with anyone with just about, but just about anything. Mm. Um, he, and, and it's true. I mean, he would, cha- he would challenge us and be like, take a book off of the shelf. Like, don't tell me what it is. Go to a page, like, and, like, read, like, three words to me, and then I'll tell you the rest of it. Like, I'll read you the whole paragraph. Whoa. And he actually had his, he, I mean, he did it all the time. Did he just have, like, he a photographic did have a photograph memory? memory? Oh, wow. Yeah. He's, yes, he's yeah. very smart. So he's very good at, he knows a lot, and then he can talk his way around what he doesn't anybody. know. <laughs> yeah. Mm. What he doesn't know. Exactly. Mm. And then he did, he did know some people. He, he did know people in the government. He right. knew chief of police, um, chief of police, former, um, and New York city detectives, DEA agents. Like he knew all these people. Yeah. Um, and I met them and they were, they're like, hi, I'm Larry's friend. Right. You know, how, how um, did he know all of these people? How did this happen? Do we know? I think that the way that he operated for many years is kind of this classic con man thing where he was just leveraging one connection after another to just kind of leapfrog mm. up 
So mm-hmm. it'd be like, I, you know, he has someone he knew from childhood. He uses them to get connected to someone who's a little bit more powerful. And then he meets someone else and he claims he knows this person. And he's just right. sort of bouncing back and forth. Um, and I think that a lot of a lot of how you can understand Larry is that most of us have um, all kinds of other goals for our lives and things that we care about and, and that take up our attention and time. If you're just like single-minded and all you care about is kind of uh, trying to achieve status for its own sake or power for its own sake, um, you can you can get a long way. There's a natural cadence to conversation, and I think we all know the feeling of like waiting for a natural pause when you can interject. And I think that if you just imagine feeling that feeling for years, that's ah, what it was like my God. to be with Larry Ray, just someone who is so capable of ignoring mm. all of the etiquette that we've all learned our whole lives and just never stops. The anxiety that that creates in, ma- in me. Well, he was that. on 120 milligrams of Adderall sometimes. So, wow. Yeah. Combining yeah. all of that shit together and you've got... Well, yeah, when you have as focused a goal, he was actually slower. He was slow. He slower was on more Adderall. calm when he had his 120 milligrams. Whoa! Like you didn't want to talk to him bef- if he didn't have his Adderall. It was oh like, god. oh my god, you didn't take your Adderall. Whoa! <laughs> like, here, uh, yeah. Was this what you were so, texting me about saying the energy that this man had? Yes, Is I it, was like, oh. how? I, I, like, I complete one task a day, and I'm like, I did it. And he, this man is just like <laughs> moving trees and like buildings, and like the smartest people I've ever seen are like, yeah. I, I'm just like, whoa! I can't. I don't understand why sociopaths have so much energy. It's it, it can they insane. give us some of it, yes, please? Yes. Um, and, yeah. and yet at the same time, he got nothing done. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. They know. Ne- yes. 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 Yeah. She never finished anything. He was never on time. Really? Like he could just. He could not get it together. Mm. It's, it's true. Well, and then, but then it license was the whole time. No. Oh wow. Well, why do you yeah, need a driver's license when on. you have? You know, people you're abusing who do Two everything chauffeurs. for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, <laughs> So Felicia, can you tell us about how you first met him? How did how did the, it all start? Oh. So I met Larry through my sister and my brother. Um, I think that he had them, you know, engineer this uh, this dinner. So I came home from Los Angeles to visit, and my brother was like, "Oh, we have to go out to dinner with Larry. Like, you have to meet my friend Larry." And I was like. Okay, sure, <laughs> sure. Let's go meet Larry. <laughs> um, so it was the three of us and Larry. We went out to an Italian restaurant, um, and he was just—he was really just cheerful, um, really nice, charming, um, kind. Uh, not not like how he ended up being. Yeah, <laughs> obviously, right? Um, he 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 was he seemed great, and he was really smart. Um, he he could keep up like conversations with me about you know my, all of my medicine, my psychiatry, ev- any everything you know everything that I knew about. Mm. Um, so I it was I was it was cool. I was like, oh, yeah. you know, he's he's you know I like him. He's he's good. Um, and my brother really likes him. My sister is a fan um 
then he took me back. He took us, well, all of us. We went back to the apartment and we talked to him. We talked for for a really long time. It was like till two in the morning or something. We stayed up talking. Um, and he played some songs for me. Um, he was really into this music, uh, music therapy. So he, you know, he, he had learned about um, our family dynamics from talking to Santos and my mm. sister, Elisa. Um, so he knew, you know, the thing, what had been going on with my parents and my relationship with my parents already. So he plays these really sad songs about like father daughter relationships. Oh my gosh. Um, and it's like all of this Tori Amos. And I'm just like, oh my God. So I'm like, I, and I mean, it's beautiful music and it's, it is very emotional, right? So I end up crying. But the story that comes out of that is not about the music, is that he ends up saying afterwards that I confessed to him that my family was out to get him, was working with Bernard Carrick to uh, kill him and tell yeah. And he went to jail before and Bernard was a part yes. of that, correct? So in 2003, yes. Larry went to jail. Bernard was part of this mm-hmm. conspiracy, which was actually just a normal person should go to jail mm-hmm. for this. So so he's right. saying, yes, you told me that Bernard, your family's working with him. And, and right. Right. Okay. Okay. Got it. So then I was, so then he, this is where, this is where the, the, the poisoning plot starts, mm-hmm. um, where he, he starts first to, night. Damn. Yeah. The first night. Oh, crazy. Yeah. yeah. So he, he's, he already singles me out as like the good one because I'm the one that came and told him and oh like uncovered God. the plot. And then everyone else turns into poisoners, like, you know, years down the line, but it's, you know, he he started, he had this in his mind very early on right. that there was some kind of the conspiracy theory against him. Um, and then he leveraged, he leveraged that and everything else he made my sister and my brother um, believe um, against me, um, against me and my parents. Do you think he believed any of this or is he just messing with you guys? Just shaking her head no. Dinner no first. yes yeah. sorry first, <laughs> video yeah no i don't i don't think he believed it yeah um there were so many times when he he's he he has a great poker face so he mm-hmm. can tell you things and it, it sounds like he he it's true mm-hmm. um but and but i've seen him do it to, to me even he'll like he'll tell me something he's like i was just kidding like you believed me i was like yes mm-hmm. i believed you Um, So, no, I don't think he believed it. It's because it was absolutely there. There was there was no basis. Right. Um, There was no foundation. um, And he clearly had his own agenda. The question about whether he believed what he said, I think, is really interesting. And also the reason that I didn't leave for a really long time was because I thought that I could figure out an answer to Mm. what was going on in Larry's head and whether he believed it or not, or whether this, even if he didn't believe what he was saying, it was part of a program to help us. Like he claimed all these things. And it just turned out at a certain point that that maze is doesn't have an exit on purpose yeah you know it's like intended to be that absurd uh and not navigable and so 
the only answer just becomes like, I don't deserve to be hurt this way uh, mm. and can just stop it, you know? Right. And uh, how thing. you stopped it is one of my favorite stories of, uh, we have to get to that um, because it's so fascinating and what we see a lot. Um, can we talk about when you went back to Los Angeles, because you were going to go back to Los Angeles, your life was going to continue as normal, but you started being followed. Is that so, the correct? Yeah. Um, so I went back to LA because I, I was only here for a few days to visit my family. And then I was, then I had to go back to work. Um, I was, was I still on psychiatry? Yeah, I was still on my psychiatry rotations. Um, so, um, I go back to Los Angeles. I start, Larry starts calling me like all the time. Um, mostly with the pretext of talking about how Santos is doing, how, um, my sister is doing, um, cause I'm, I'm the eldest and my parents worked a lot. So I was effectively like the third parent. Right. Um, so I, you know, um, so I, I, I was really the person that was there for my siblings, mm -hmm. um, for both of them as, as, while we were growing up. Um, so so naturally, um, and I, and I had a very good relationship with both of them. So when Larry wanted to talk about something that was going on with either of them, that he would talk to like a mom about, he would talk to me. Mm. Um, and so, so that was the pretext. And then, then we got to talking about other things. He, he was very interested in my work. Um, I love my job. So I was happy to talk about work. Um, and then, and then it got to be, um, I mean, then, then he, he got, you know, he got romantic and then he started saying, I love you. It took maybe like two or three months and he started telling me, I love you. Um, but he, I, now I don't know if I was being followed or not. Yeah. That's what I was think, curious about. But I think, I don't think I actually was. I think he got me so paranoid that I believed that I was being followed, that I believed that people were going to come after me, that I, I mean, and he would, he planted it, like, we're not planted. He said it constantly. Um, well, you know, because you're talking to me, like, Carrick's going to be looking for you. Mm -hmm. I was like, what are you talking about? What does that have to do with anything? Um, and then it just, he, he just, he persisted and he just made this story. Um, and Sorry, this is hard. Yeah, no, you're um, fine. It's, it's hard to talk about, uh, but because um, it's just so much, you know, he, he, it didn't take long for him to just make me paranoid or be, par or he was paranoid himself. He was worried about me seeing other people. He was worried about me, ha who I was having sex with, who I was going out with, um, just like everything that a like a controlling like significant other does like that's what he did but it was like long distance mm. um and it was he was just he was so determined like he's so good at controlling and like and manipulating people really like yeah. really like getting to your vulnerabilities and um fears and weaknesses that like she was in my head um, and it was, and there was very little I could do 
to 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 fight back um, yeah. up until September of 2012 when he 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 broke me and was like, "Okay, you're broken. Now you need to come to New York." And I had no I had not no choice but to come back and leave my job, you know, without any notice. So how how long were these conversations that he was having with you? Hours. Yeah. There were there were because I mean I worked during the day as you know as and as a resident or as an intern it's I'm working at least twelve hours a day. Wow. Um, my weekends is like free time, right? It would be like all all a whole Saturday from like morning to night, and we would be on the phone all day. Wow. Yeah. All day, and he would just be asking me questions or berating me. I mean, it, it just went all sorts of ways. And then I could just never get off the phone. Yeah. Wow, um, yeah. But somehow, yeah. And then somehow he was still doing everything else in the apartment at the same time while he was talking to me. It just, it was so crazy. Right, it's like there were five of them. I was just going to say there were five around. of them. Yeah. Jinx. Oh, wow. oh yeah. Um. <laughs> Like, he was everywhere all at once. Yeah. I just want to comment on the fact that, like, you know, this isn't like you're having an hour conversation and he's in your head. Like, he is taking up all of your free time and hijacking all of your ability to think for yourself because you have literally, even though you're not with him, you have no time alone. And that is how that is the classic way that people indoctrinate people over time is you just do not even give them a chance to start to think critically at all. Busy, busy. Right. So you're like, I have to go back to New York. Someone's following me. I'm terrified. Daniel, were you still at the apartment at this time or had you left yet? I was. Yeah, we we overlapped at the apartment um, for a little while. And what was it like at that point? What Had it started to become more chaotic? Had all this shit started to come moving in because he was just like compounding stuff in this apartment? And yeah, how, what was the vibe there? Yeah, the way I think of it now is if he started to make the interior of the apartment and all of us like uh, reflections of the inside of his own brain. So it became, it was like hell in there. Like it was just piled high with, it was like there were 10 apartments in one apartment, you know, just like so many boxes of random things and appliances and tools and supplies. And then he'd bring in, heavy-duty woodworking equipment, um, you know, a bandsaw that weighed, I think, 800 pounds, like all these things. I don't even know how he got them into this apartment. Um, so, yes, it was highly chaotic. You, by then, you had people... At first, you know, Santos had was going back to his parents uh, at night, but then by then, was he was sleeping over, Avon was sleeping over, I was sleeping, you know... So there's just like people sleeping on the floor, trying to just sort of make space around like paint cans. It was totally out of control and not good for um, feeling sane. Mm-hmm. What, what did he say that all this stuff was in there for? Well, he claimed that the reason it was so chaotic was that we were failing to organize the space and that if he had an hour, he would fix everything, but he had to let us figure out how to do it or how to sort of better ourselves um, and that there was room for everything. If you just figured out how to organize it, Ugh, like, it makes me want to scream. It makes me want to yeah. scream. 
Yeah, everything is yeah, your exactly. fault. That's that's just the yes. class. Every no matter what, it is your you are the problem. And I could fix it so easily. Yeah, but why can't you? Yeah. Ugh. Right. Like, um, but I'm going to make it a teaching lesson and let you, I'm going to let you do it mm-hmm. just so, so you learn. Thanks. So I'm not going to do it. Daniel, can you talk about the process, like how it began to actually turn violent? Yeah. So I think as is classic with these sort of group coercive control situations, there was a, a kind of hierarchy that emerged, but that hierarchy was always shifting. Larry was always at the top. But who is at the very bottom would cycle. So it would be someone was the scapegoat for everything. It was one person's fault that the apartment was in chaos because they had been sabotaging Mm -hmm. Larry and sabotaging everyone else's progress. You never wanted to be that person. So you would do everything you could to be good. And there was this feeling that everyone had to be careful because someone else would tell Larry that you had said something wrong or done something wrong. I don't know how often that actually happened, but that was the feeling. So there came a point when I, you know, it had been in and out, but at a certain point I was very much on the bottom and it just happened that for whatever reason, I think that Larry was experimenting with how far he could push it with me uh, at first or something. Um, I mean, he had been really extreme with everyone, so it's hard to say for me. But uh, it became about both scapegoating me for things that had gone wrong. He claimed I had sabotaged his daughter's application to law school, um, among other things, but also... It became about my sexuality in a pretty intense way um, and about kind of fixing me um, and uh, everything just sort of compounded all at once. So in my memory, it just was like one thing after another, uh, getting more and more extreme uh, until I left. So can you describe for us how the cracks began to emerge in your brain and ultimately led to you leaving? So... I at first was starting to kind of doubt uh, Larry a little bit and in simple uh, ways that now in retrospect feel silly. Like he was obsessed with creating these websites and that he was going to own all these domain names and make all these websites and they were going to make a lot of money. It just happens that my dad's business my whole life is designing websites. So I knew, I was just like, these are bad websites. These are the kind of websites that you land on when you mistype Google. <laughs> right. And, like fake, you know, and these don't. It's like no the one you made when you were yeah, 13. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And so he claimed that he was making like millions of dollars. And I just was like, there's no way that that's true. And then once you start to question little, like one thing, it's like, well, if that's not true, then either he's lying about it or he doesn't know. And either way, something is wrong. Right. And then you start to wonder, you know, what is he doing in the bedroom for all those hours with Isabella or like, you know, all these things. And um, so that combined, I I think that he could tell that I was doubting. Uh, He started like showing me photos of him with Gorbachev or a photo of him with George H.W. Bush. He had a friend of his from childhood get on the phone with me and tell me about how amazing Larry was as a young man, all these things. So it felt like he was trying to prove something to me. But as I was still kind of not getting with the program, he was escalating the physical violence. Um, So, you know, towards the end, he, there was a night that he 
made a what he called a garrote out of uh, uh, saran wrap and aluminum foil and like wrapped that around my groin um, and was tightening it in front of my friends uh, trying to get me to admit to some sabotage. There was the night that he, you know, put me in a dress and made me like try to swallow a dildo like and and mm-hmm. say that I wasn't gay anymore, all these things. And so there was one day that for some reason I was up and no one else was and or people were out of the apartment. And I went up to the roof of this building. This is on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's like the, a 45-story building, I think. And I don't really know. It was just sort of an impulse. I went up to the roof and then I saw a ladder. And this is also pre-Larry. I just a person who likes climbing up and finding high places. You're a cat. <laughs> yeah, I'm a cat. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I climbed this ladder and it was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like I'm getting up on this, this the highest building in this area. Um, and then there's a water tower. I got to the top of the water tower. And something that Larry had claimed the entire time that I knew him was that we were all suicidal whether we kind of knew it or not, mm. that it was an impulse we couldn't control, like a switch in our brain. And it could happen kind of any time. Wow. And his help, the whole point of his help was that he was protecting us from ourselves and that if we weren't careful or that if we got away from him, we would impulsively like step onto the train tracks or something like that. Mm. And he played on that feeling. You know, I think we all get that sort of call of the void where you like, you're holding your keys and you kind of want to drop them down like a grate. He just kind of was like, you know, that feeling like that's weird. You, no one else has that. You just, you, Mm -hmm. um, and he claimed that if one of us did it, we would all do it. Um, so I was up there on this water tower and was like, if I really wanted to kill myself, you know, I'm 450 feet in the air. Mm. I'm on the edge of this thing. I could absolutely very easily do it. And I was like, do I want to honestly, given everything else? And I didn't, I was like, I don't want to die. And I, and that's, it's not true. And so if that fundamentally isn't true and it's at the heart of everything he's claimed this whole time, then a lot of other things must not be true. Right. And either way I'm being harmed and it feels dangerous and I don't want to, I feel like it's going to get worse and I want to live. And so I felt like I had to just try and figure out a way to get away without him following me. Um, And so that became a whole other um, pursuit. It's just so interesting that you just needed like a couple hours by yourself to get your brain back. That's how busy and exhausted and everything I feel like. I mean, yeah, definitely interesting that he would be in your head so often and then you got away for a minute and got out we see that a a lot a lot of stories began with just like a little bit of alone time Mm -hmm. the pandemic Mm -hmm. made a lot of people leave the cult i was raised in because they weren't Mm. programmed of every five seconds so anyway very interesting so you're yeah he's you're back in the real world you go back to school whereas felicia your life is just beginning to ramp up into madness Yes. Yeah. Talk yeah. about that time and, and, and how he had sort of hijacked your brain, essentially, at that point. He seemed like such an so skilled at convincing people they were crazy, that there was something wrong with them. You know, just, yeah, tell us mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. So um, it started it started before I came back here, you know, before I came back to New York. 
um, in September of 2012. And within the month, um, we went on, he had me drive him to Washington, D.C. to meet his friend, who actually was a Marine, a lieutenant general in the Marine Corps, um, retired. Did you know he had and, me do that, too? I didn't realize that you yeah. also did that. Yeah, same I friend. I did. I, wow. Huh? Same same guy. But yeah, yeah. Larry. Yeah, yeah. Same guy. Yeah, same guy. Okay, cool. Yeah, he's he was awesome. Um, <laughs> the guy was awesome, not Larry. Yes, no, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I he he um he yells at me and gaslights me the whole way down, and he has me meet you know and we get there. And then we meet his, we meet some more law enforcement friends. And he's like, this is, he, this person's from the DEA, the Navy SEAL, FBI, all of these, you know, branches of government. He's like, you know, if anything ever happened to me there, they would, they would come after you. If you ever did anything to me, they would come after you. Terrifying. Um, And he got on me for like a whole other day. And he, he made me suicidal. Like the next at night, when we went to sleep, I got up and I went and bought a bunch of Tylenol and took it. I took it and, and I found a river um, and uh, and I was trying to, I'm not going to be too detailed, but the point was I did have, unfortunately, I did end up taking the Tylenol, but I did have my moment of, wait a minute, I don't want to die. Mm. Um and I got out, I clawed myself back to the street, the police found me, and then they took me to the hospital. But then Larry got to the hospital, and he hijacked the whole mm. hospital visit. Mm. He told the, the doctors that I was tried to kill myself mm. because of my mother, and like made all of this stuff up, and then had me taken out um, against medical advice, um, and then used... And then use that as leverage over me saying like, you'll never be a doctor again. Who's ever going to hire a doctor who's trying to commit suicide. Um, And then, you know, like Daniel was saying about the scapegoat, um, since he couldn't get me to do what he wanted all the time, um, because he was really, he was trying to groom all of us and to have this sexual grooming. And I didn't cooperate. I ended up the scapegoat, especially after Daniel was gone. Mm. Um, so he would he would beat me. He would starve me. I spent a week in Pinehurst out on the porch. He left me out on the porch without food um, or water um, with like a blanket. And I wasn't allowed to leave the property. Otherwise, he was going to call the police. Um, oh, my gosh. He would punch me in the face. Like he would like regularly, um, it just it went on. It it was just it went on and on. Like and almost anything you could do to somebody, he did to me. And there is footage of some of this stuff, which is just fucking horrible to see. I'm also glad it exists for court mm-hmm. for the case, so that he cannot continue to gaslight people. Yes, I'm so glad. But but what an idiot! What a dumb move on his part, yeah. <laughs> filming all of his abuse. No, I mean, and he swore he was. 
he swore it was gonna he was gonna be vindicated with all of this footage. He's like, No, I'm gonna Brilliant. show how crazy everyone was towards me and how badly wow. behaved everyone was towards me and everyone's gonna go to jail because wow. they hurt me. Ultimately, that was what he would say. Ultimately, do you think that this was about sex for him? Because he did—he ended up stealing so much money from all of your parents, turning all of you again. Like he told you, Felicia, that your your siblings were poisoning you, and he he really tried to separate you from your families. So I just wanted to know: Do you guys know like a motive, or do you know what the hell was he doing? Power. I mean, I I, I don't know if you want me to go I, ahead, Daniel. I don't think there's a really good answer for this. The way that I thought about it is like. Uh, however you want to think about like what he believed or what he thought was true or wasn't whatever is clearly like a sick person. And I think that I think of it as someone who, whose sickness was contagious and he just like needed to figure out a way to make us psychotic. Like he Mm. was to make us delusional. Like he was, um, but I don't know, you know, it seemed like someone who was incapable of surviving in regular society and who was trying to like force his way into a version of survival and who seemed to derive some kind of pleasure or satisfaction from torturing other people. I just would love to hear how you guys are doing now, um, now seeing that he is actually being prosecuted and you're get, you're sharing your story. Like, t- how are you, Felicia? <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, I'm doing, I'm, I'm so happy. Um, really that happy is the word elated. Um, he was just sentenced, uh, January 20th, uh, 60 years in prison. He's 63. So he would get out at 123 years old, effectively life (laughs) and supervised release. So, I mean, I'm just so glad the justice system worked. Um, and the judge really nailed it. Um, he really, he was really able to see the truth and, and, you know, stand by it. Um, and, and it, it, I felt so validated. Hmm. I'm so glad. Yeah, we, get to, mm-hmm. we get to be in the very small group of people who can say that they put their abuser in prison oh. and the very small group <laughs> yeah. of people who get to say that they put their uh, occult leader in prison. And right. that's, uh, that's unbelievable. Um, and I, I hope that more people get to say that. I know. Oh my god. Me too. But I'm so I'm so happy that yeah. justice is actually being served. You guys deserve it so much for what you've been through. And I yeah, I once again I very much we very much appreciate you coming on and sharing yeah. your story. What do you feel about Isabella being prosecuted, Talia being prosecuted? What what is your feelings on that? <laughs> you don't <laughs> have to. Do no, I know. Uh, sure. yeah, I don't know. You don't know. Yeah. Do you want to go? Oh, sure. I'll go. I'll go. Um, I think with, you know, with Isabella, she was his first victim. Right. And, you know, she he he had he got her in a very vulnerable time and she was so young and then she didn't know anything but Larry of life. Like the only life she ever knew was Larry. So I understood why she went the way that she did. I just, I hope that, I hope that as time passes and, you know, she sees the series um, and sees, you know, how everyone else is doing, that she starts to make better choices for herself. Yeah. Um, But I think, you know, 
what Larry made her do is like is a prison sentence in and of itself, like having to live with that. Mm. Um, yeah. And then Talia, I don't I don't really know with Talia. I think she was just so unfortunate to be born to him. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, what what did what choice, you know, if we're talking about choice, like what choice did she really have in, you know, fighting back against her dad? So it's an incredibly empathetic perspective to take. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, Do you, so the series is stolen youth inside the cult at Sarah Lawrence on Hulu. Um, And do you guys have anything of your own that you'd like to share in terms of like social media or any work that you do or anything? Daniel, go ahead. Daniel, you do poetry. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I do poetry. Um, Yeah. I have a a memoir that I had written about this called uh, Slonem Woods nine, which is a reference to the, dorm uh that we lived in um or where i first met larry um i don't really have anything to share as far as social media i'm teaching a class with um stanford's continuing education program on converting uh your most difficult memories into uh (gasps) memoir and into writing Um, that's a class i've taught before um i find narrative a really helpful Mm. form of therapy totally that's awesome and uh, anything for you? Yeah, I, so I'm just working and trying to get back into life right mm. now. Okay. So Wonderful. Next time I'll let you know. That's a, that's a great place to be. <laughs> Let's get back to life. Thank you guys so much yeah. for, for talking you, to Bob. us today. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. And have a good rest of your day. Okay, Megan. So obviously mm. so much more I wish we could have asked them. But for now, I'm just going to ask you a question. Okay. And the question is, do you think that if you were at Sarah Lawrence and you met Larry Ray, that you would have joined his group? Oh, my God. Yes. Goodbye forever. I would have been so deep in getting attention from a grown up. Yeah. Especially one that's so wise. And I I love slumber parties. I love when everybody puts little <laughs> pallets on the floor and sleeps together to just live that way would have been heavenly. I would have loved the community. I would have loved his like, we're getting up at six and doing pushups together. And I would have just been sucked in to getting my shit together uh forever you know it sounds like you should join the military i've been thinking about it (laughs) can you imagine (laughs) sleepovers every night (laughs) lots of structure (laughs) oh my lord mean men yelling at me yeah i definitely i definitely would join i think you would too huh oh yeah i think so for sure i i think like i have a um (laughs) i have a like i would say I, I don't know what adjective to use. I have an inordinate respect for authority that mm. I really like. <laughs> I have been like, I am the kid who is terrified of getting in trouble with the teacher, but not only terrified of getting in trouble with the teacher, but I will try so hard to make them like me. You know, right. like I want the authority figure to like me. And if a man were to come along at that vulnerable time in my life and be like, here's what you got to do. I know these government people. Mm-hmm. Here's my photo with real politician. Like, I would be I would be in. I would be sold, especially because, I don't know, like, uh, whatever. I have a history of being drawn to men with authoritative tones in their voice. And, and yeah, it would not have been good for me. Yeah, I would have um, been I would have been super fucked with him. Yeah. Um, well, thank God he can't keep doing this to people now. 
put him away. Well, thank you for being here with us for another week of Trust Me. We can't wait to see you again next time. And as always, remember to follow your gut, watch out for red flags, and and never, never, ever ever trust me. Bye. Bye. Trust Me is produced by Kirsten Woodward, Gabby Rapp, and Steve Delamater. With special thanks to Stacey Para. And our theme song was composed by Holly Amber Church. You can find us on Instagram at Trust Me Podcast, Twitter at Trust Me Cult Pod, or on TikTok at Trust Me Cult Podcast. I'm Ula Lola on Instagram and Ola Lola on Twitter. And I am Megan Elizabeth 11 on Instagram and Abraham Hicks on Twitter. Remember to rate and review and spread the word.